This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Leia Healthcare, we always want to give our members more. So now you get unrestricted access to a world of benefits that will help you stay healthy. From convenient video calls with a GP to get prescriptions online, to easy access to experts when you finally want to do something about your ropey knee or dodgy back. And if you do need to see someone urgently, our clinics are available for minor injuries, all without you needing to put your hand in your pocket. Let's stay on top of your health, in every way. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Insurance provided by Ellipse Insurance Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare. Leia Healthcare Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare and Leia Life is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Unrestricted benefits are available until the end of December. Fair usage policy applies. What's that? Uh, taxi driver? Ah, yeah, cool. And, uh, shower head, big knife. Is that psycho? Okay. Dancing lady. Are, are those wolves? Dances with wolves? They kind of look more like foxes. Or a hedgehog. Okay, what's this? Uh, a radio, another wolf slash fox, and lots of people. Radio fox group. Radio wolf bunch. Radio wolf gang. Radio Wolfgang emoji title, I love it. Smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio Wolfgang. Yeah, we're back on the air. The girls are down, but we don't care. We're mobile now. We're everywhere. Yeah, Radio Wolfgang is back on the air. An open letter. Research priorities for robust and beneficial artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence research has explored a variety of problems and approaches since its inception, but for the last 20 years or so has been focused on the problems surrounding the construction of intelligent agents. Systems that perceive and act in some environment. You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. Hello. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. Did you know that I was brought here to test you? Does Ava actually like you? Or is she pretending to like you? It's like climbing a mountain, you know, suddenly you kind of realize that you've, you can climb up this next bit. And when you get over that ridge, are you just going to see that the mountain is taller than you, than you thought? Or are you going to be at the summit? Nobody knows. 
It's not a paranoid technology movie. It's not anti-AIs. It's not anti-robots. Often in these narratives, that's what we do. It's Skynet. You know, it's Terminator. They're going to kill us. Over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossils. To prevent an artificial intelligence from becoming dangerous to us, what measures do you think need to be taken and how should we best implement them? I, I don't fear. The question assumes that that's going to happen. We don't know if these deep learning inspired products and services will display true intelligence, but my answer kind of is, well, who gives a shit? You know, they're going to take our jobs anyway. Did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? I programmed her to be heterosexual, just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. Nobody programmed me to be straight. You decided to be straight? Please, of course you were programmed by nature or nurture or both. And to be honest, Caleb, you're starting to annoy me now because this is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. As our computing power gets better, as our machines get better, yeah, we will program machines to do stuff we need them to do. By the way, we've been doing that forever. What will happen to me if I fail your test? Eva. Will it be bad? Do you think I might be switched off because I don't function as well as I'm supposed to? Eva. I don't know the answer to your question. It's not up to me. Why is it up to anyone? Do you have people to test you and might switch you off? No, I don't. Then why do I? On one hand, if we're sloppy and don't pay attention, bad things can happen. But on the other hand, if we really do put our best efforts into preparing for this, then uh, artificial intelligence can create an amazingly awesome future where life can flourish like never before. Power cuts. Backup power activated. Hello, science-ish fans. I'm Rick Edwards. And with me as always is Dr. Michael Brooks. Michael, say hello. Hello. Well, I think my one was actually not very good. It was quite flat and uh, emotionless. But actually, your one was remarkably accurate, wasn't it? <laughs> I don't know why I got the shit sort of Atari 1980s hello voice. Well, because you're the shit Atari 1980s sort of component of this show, aren't you? <laughs> that, that can't be news to you. I'll, I mean, I'll do the intro again, even though obviously it's been done magnificently by a robot, <laughs> as in our producers. Welcome to Science-ish. Um, I'm with Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Perfect. <laughs> so as you know, we pick over the science in a work of fiction uh, in each episode and then ask three key questions about it. And this episode is about ex machina so first of all did you enjoy the film michael absolutely I'll tell you, I loved, it. loved this film it's one of my favorite films now and it it bears you know repeated viewings it just makes you think and it kind of works on on lots of different levels as well i, I really like it as a kind of thriller i like it as a as just a thought-provoking almost philosophical kind of film and i quite like looking at the robots as well I would say it's better. It's a better science film than The Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> big claim. Yeah, it is a big claim. Famously reviewed as Gash by Rick Edwards. <laughs> yeah, I think they're sticking that on the DVDs. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, the, the plot is essentially 
that a billionaire who runs uh, a Google type. Um, yeah, Google, Facebookish kind yeah, of thing. It's, it's a search blue engine, book, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. He he lives in isolation somewhere. Feels sort of Scandinavian, but you never really know yeah. where it is. And he is developing in secret robots with strong artificial intelligence, or trying to. And he's, yeah. and he's making significant breakthroughs. And he needs to do a test with an outsider. So he invites someone from his organization along for a week to come and do these these Turing tests, effectively, yeah. um, with this robot, Ava. And as you mentioned, the, what's really fantastic, actually, about the film is it, it does work on, on a lot of levels. So I think you could watch it with no scientific knowledge or, or scientific interest and find it entertaining and, uh, and interesting and thrilling. Um, but the, the scientific underpinning is, is very strong and very credible, isn't it? Yeah, because it was actually inspired by a book on artificial intelligence. I think it's called Embodiment in the Inner Life. And it was written by a guy called Murray Shanahan. You went and met Murray, didn't you? I did, yeah, at Imperial College. So, um, Murray, the first thing I really want to know is how you got involved in, in the film Ex Machina. Well, I got an email from Alex Garland, a little bit like the beginning of the film, actually, where this guy gets oh, yeah, this email, yeah. you know, uh, and he said that he'd uh, he'd read a book of mine, in fact, Embodiment in the Inner Life, and that this had helped him on the, a script that he was working on for a film about AI and consciousness, and would I like to kind of have a chat with him about it? And it was a pretty cool email to get. Yeah, so you had no hesitation about it? I had no hesitation, no, no. Were you worried that he would sort of, you know, twist it, it would become this usual sort of hype or, or go away from your kind of angle on the research? Of course, it's a science fiction film and, and, you know, what you expect from a science fiction film is a little bit different from what you would expect from, say, a media report like this. I mean, I know you guys aren't going to twist anything around. (laughs) But uh, obviously, in a work of fiction, you can get away with a lot more. But in fact, the script was absolutely brilliant. And um, Alex, I think, really wanted to know whether it hung together from the standpoint of somebody working on AI and consciousness and... um, and for me, it very, very much did, yeah. Uh, I met up with Alex quite a few times during the production, if I remember, two or three times, where he really just wanted to to chat about consciousness and AI. And so it just ended up being a sort of fun lunchtime conversation about these issues that yeah. really interested him. But uh, but the one thing I did get involved with is that I have an Easter egg in the film. So So this little hidden message. So there's a point at the film when Caleb... Uh, the programmer is typing at, at the terminal, and uh, and there's some code flashes up on the screen. And, yeah. uh, and if you uh, if you're very very geeky and you freeze the frame and you kind of like type which that I'm going to go in, and do, which of, you can, of course you're now going to go and do, and you type that code into a Python interpreter and run it, you'd never know by looking at the code before you actually run it. But it then prints out ISBN equals in the ISBN, the international standard book number of my book, Embodiment <laughs> in the Inner Life. That's amazing. So, right. so, have you heard of anyone who has done that? Oh yeah. Oh so, really? So, yeah. I mean, so so Alex said, he says you can be sure that as soon as this thing comes out on DVD, somebody will freeze that frame and will say, "What's that that code doing?" So he said, "We'll give them a, this Easter egg." Um, and it, in fact, it didn't require the thing to come out on DVD. It was available on BitTorrent within 24 hours. Somebody <laughs> had had written a blog post about this uh, this Easter egg. And, uh, That's amazing. You know, uh, the, the, if you Google it, you'll find quite a few people yeah. have written about it. Any sales this. from that? Or? 
Uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, there was a tremendous spike in sales <laughs> in my book. Um, so I, 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 I think I sold another one, yeah. And, uh, in, in fact, when I told this to Alex, he said, oh, yeah, he said, my copy got a bit dog-eared, so I had to buy one. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the spike in sales. Uh, the bit where Murray talks about the Easter egg and, and sort of freeze-framing on that bit of code that Caleb is typing in, and you say, uh, oh, I'm going to go and do that immediately. I've rarely heard anything so disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> have you done it? No. <laughs> Did you have any intention of doing not it? Not really. No. <laughs> Probably not, no. From, from a technical point of view, what are the differences between types of artificial intelligence? Because there are specific artificial intelligences, aren't there? And then more, more general ones, the kind yeah. of harder ones to achieve. So you, you get this thing called weak artificial intelligence, which is just a single purpose, effectively, not particularly good. So something that would play a game of chess very well yeah, it's, it's sort of been programmed to, to sort of look at all the possible moves and, and do some sort of work on that. But strong artificial intelligence, it goes much deeper. It has ability to kind of hone itself for different tasks and, and can take on, you know, a, a variety of, of things that it, it can turn its skills to effectively. You know, the human brain is, is really good in a general strong intelligence in that we can drive a car, we can read a book and we can talk to people. And, you know, we do lots of different things with just this thing inside our skulls. And I think that's what strong AI it aims to be is a sort of really multi-purpose and, and extremely adaptable yeah yeah hmm. I, I read a, a thing the other day about this go playing computer yeah did you see that yeah um so go is a is a board game that is i guess similar to to chess in some ways and it's a, a strategy game but it is much more complex it is there are yeah. so many more moves yeah so um, google's uh, program actually beat the european go champion hmm. and uh, the interesting thing is so you know a few years ago i i talked to go programmers and they were saying how difficult this is to do because if you're a really good go player you rely on your intuition hmm. it's like you look at patterns on the board and those patterns kind of tell you what you should be doing but you can't program that into a computer that you know it's almost like you can't if you can't say it if you can't explain what you're doing how are you going to program the computer to do it and so a lot of them thought that Go was just one of these things that would always be beyond artificial intelligence. So the fact that Google has now sort of done this, and I think next month it's going to take on the world champion at Go, yeah, and it fully Korean. expects to, yeah, fully mm. expects to win, which means it opens up a door to effectively computers showing intuition. So let's um, conjure up our, our questions then. So I think the first question has to be, whilst the, the AI that Ava has in the film is not around, so far as we know, how far off are we from that type of artificial intelligence? And actually, what sort of artificial intelligence is that? Yeah, so that would be human-level intelligence. You know, if you see the film, it's very hard to sort of credit as anything else, really. Uh, so it's sort of artificial general intelligence is, is kind of how it's known. And, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the capability to do anything that a human can do. And to pass this thing uh, called the Turing test. So the idea is that you know, a human interacts with this robot. And if the human can't tell that the robot is a robot, then it passes the test. You know, if you can throw everything you can at it, and as far as you can tell, this is another human, then, then that passes. The Turing test is something conjured up by Alan Turing as a kind of way of measuring our success and in progress. Uh, the interesting twist in the film is that Caleb has to 
put Ava through this test while knowing that she's a robot. So normally you would have a kind of hidden interaction. You wouldn't see the person or, or see the robot. So you would be guessing. But now he even knows that she's a robot. He knows that she's a creation. And he's still struggling to understand. You know, we've moved on so far from just typing into a keyboard and getting a response on a screen, you know. Mm. I think the way we interact with our machines is so different now that that, that kind of interaction doesn't really you know, give us a, a, a measure. But, you know, we have things like, you know, Siri on our Apple iPhone, for instance, which is a form of artificial intelligence, if you like. And we're all very convinced very quickly that that is not a human being on the other end of it. So, you know, we're, we're almost conducting these little informal Turing tests all the time as technology progresses. All right, then. So our first question is, how far off artificial general intelligence are we? I can't tell you how often I get asked this question. <laughs> I'm contractually and, obliged and, to and, ask and, that. Uh, and, and, and so... Uh, I'm going to quote John McCarthy very quickly. John McCarthy, one of the great pioneers of, of artificial intelligence, who coined the phrase, and he, he said, uh, he said, well, any time in the next five to 500 years. <laughs> I, I heard him say that many times. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we really don't know. I think that we will have something that we can fairly call human-level AI. I'm pretty confident that we will have that by the end of the century. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it comes a fair bit sooner than that. But on the other hand, all of this is uncertain. And I think there are probably a number of conceptual breakthroughs that are needed before we get there. We don't even know what those conceptual breakthroughs are. So it could be decades away. And maybe it won't even happen by the, by the end of the century. So well, we really don't know. And what about the idea of deep learning sort of from search engine inputs, which you know, the, I think the, the source of Ava's artificial intelligence is yeah. that... Uh, Plausible well, uh, certainly what is plausible is is that very sophisticated artificial intelligence can be achieved through exploiting very large quantities of data. This was suspense beyond anything the world of chess had ever known. Garry Kasparov, 34 years old, a cheerful and confident player throughout a dominating career, hovered over his pieces in the deciding game of a match with an implacable challenger. Deep Blue, a computer. So actually, the mechanism by which... Ava is uh, gaining AI in the film isn't that far-fetched, is it? No, I don't think it is. And this is something that we call machine learning. So AI has traditionally always been programmed so it could carry out very specific tasks like playing chess, for example. But those kinds of machines, they could beat world champions, but if you sort of got them to play something else like Monopoly, they would just fail. They got nothing for that. So what this kind of machine learning does is instead of creating algorithms to carry out specific tasks, it creates and uses algorithms that allow the machine to build models. And they're based on examples of what's needed. So it's similar to how children learn. The machines are essentially shown what they're needed for, and then they build a model based on that. And this allows the system to take the raw data it's given and make predictions or decisions rather than just following fixed instructions. So one of the most promising types of machine learning is known as deep learning. And this uses complex networks of artificial neurons and huge amounts of data. And uh, it's 
turning out to be a pretty good way of making an AI that really does extraordinary things. And this deep learning is something that Jeremy Howard's company, Analytic, is now applying to medical imaging diagnosis. I don't use the term AI and nor do my colleagues because our interest literally is in bringing medicine to the 4 billion people that currently don't have it. There are many levels of machine learning algorithm, all of them terribly limited in terms of what kinds of problems they can solve. In fact, for most of computing history, machine learning algorithms have been limited to solving problems which were of a linear nature. Deep learning is a type of machine learning algorithm which relies on a mathematical function called a neural network. Uh, As the name suggests, a neural network is inspired by the way the human brain is put together, somewhat loosely inspired, but inspired nonetheless. It's very different to the kind of mathematical functions you would have played with at high school, which might have had one or two kind of variables that you plug in. A neural network has billions of parameters. This idea is that it's similar to the architecture of a human brain. There's a number of layers, hence the deep, a deep neural network, a number of layers which learn to find increasingly complex, nuanced concepts. You see, my competitors, they were fixated on sucking it up and monetizing via shopping and social media. They thought that search engines were a map of what people were thinking, but actually they were a map of how people were thinking. Impulse, response, fluid, imperfect, patterned, chaotic. Are we effectively trying to mirror how we think our brain is functioning then? I think so. Certainly this is, you know, this is an attempt to kind of accelerate, you know, the process. It takes us 20 years, 30 years or whatever to get to where we are, you know, fully sort of, you know, functioning. And, and I think, you know, the, the idea is that you can accelerate this by having massive amounts of data input and by having the right sort of sections to your, to your artificial brain. And presumably uh, unbelievable just computational power as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course it keeps getting faster and faster because the chips get better and better. So who out there are are working on on deep learning and and using deep learning? Well, unsurprisingly, Google, Mm -hmm. who have access to vast amounts of information. So they they bought this uh, DeepMind company uh, and they've basically taken it on because they see it as, you know, the way in which they're going to improve their products they're offering their web searches and everything else is through this you know development of incredibly powerful artificial intelligence uh, there's analytic which is jeremy howard's company which is using it for you know for data screening in medical things so looking for lung cancer so you know there are people who say they would now prefer to have their diagnosis done by a computer than by a human doctor because computers with this kind of artificial intelligence are so good at spotting things that, that, you know, pattern recognition effectively is all it is, but, um, you know, better than, than experienced humans at it. The guys that we've heard from so far seem, I guess, relatively confident that whilst we're, we aren't there yet, we will get there eventually to, you know, human level um, intelligence. But the thing is that not everyone agrees about what human level AI actually means. Yeah. Dr. Daniel Glazer of King's College London is very much one of those people. 
I think the concept of human-level intelligence is a bit problematic, partly because we don't understand what it means, because if by human-level intelligence you mean being able to think through a bunch of problems that we can think through, then the kind of deep mind approach, this company that was based in London, bought by Google, of just like throwing huge amounts of data at really powerful machines might well get to human level intelligence in terms of performance. I'm not sure, in fact, I am sure that they will not be human and they will not be intelligent, but they will have reached human level intelligence. Do you think about me when we are together? Did you give her sexuality as a diversion tactic? This is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. Did you know that I was brought here to test you? Does Ava actually like you? Or is she pretending to like you? Until we understand everything about human, we won't be able to explain absolutely why machines can't be like us. But I do think there are some simple clues, the sorts of intuitive reasoning that we are able to do, the sort of moral reasoning that we're able to do, the sort of free associational links. But also, I think, you know, the fact that our thinking is directed. And I do think that the question of motivation, the question of values, the question of aesthetics, the question of feelings, the question of what it feels like to be us and what feelings are like in us, these are things which I don't see machine intelligence approaching anytime soon. The primitive forms of artificial intelligence we already have, have proved very useful. But I think the development of full artificial intelligence, could spell the end of the human race. Once humans develop artificial intelligence, it would take off on its own, and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans, who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete, and would be superseded. What Dan Glazer was saying, I think, is is interesting, because he's bringing up the difference between intelligence and consciousness, effectively. Yeah. And I can't quite get my head around how different they are. Well, part of the problem we've got is nobody has a really good definition of what consciousness is. So is consciousness just being able to react to your surroundings and modify your behavior? Does it mean you might have a purpose to all of your actions? It's a very, very gray area. And if you, you know, get a bunch of AI researchers or consciousness researchers or neuroscience researchers in a room and say, okay, you know, let's bang Bugs. out a definition. <laughs> Apart from keeping the ladies out. <laughs> if you ask them to sort of bang out a definition of consciousness, you will not be able to do it. They will not agree. So, mm. so, you know, we have this kind of sense, you know, people say, oh, you know, I don't know what good art is, but I know it when I see it. I think we, we have to have that kind of approach with consciousness. It's like, well, I think that's conscious. You might not agree. You know, I've seen people argue that a thermostat is conscious because it, it responds to the temperature in the room and then turns itself on and off. So it has a reaction to its environment. You know, I, I don't think we would sort of say a thermostat is conscious, but you can make that argument if you want to. It's not a great argument. <laughs> but I, I suppose what, what interests me is that when you, when you look at consciousness in the, in the animal kingdom, we have a sense, don't we? That yeah. Like yeah. a bigger animal probably, probably is. And certainly when you look at like an amoeba, you go, well, that, that can't be conscious. Yeah. Presumably. I think but, so, but what, yeah. But what is it then? Is that just to do with sort of processing power? Well, I think we're quite sort of prejudiced, aren't we? So we think of an amoeba as, 
as just a thing. You don't really think of it as an animal or, you know, it, it doesn't even have that distinction, does it? So, no. so, you know, I know that a cat is conscious. I know that a dog is conscious. And I'm pretty sure that lots of animals are conscious. But as I go further and further down, you know, it, maybe it's to do with brain size. But it's also to do with, you know, what's it like to be an amoeba is the kind of the consciousness question. What's it like Rubbish. to be a bat? What's it like to be a cat? All right. Yeah. Quite good. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Those are my answers. <laughs> so if you can imagine what it's like to be something, then you can attribute some kind of consciousness to it. Hmm. All right. Second question is going to be, if we manage to create, so big if, if we manage to create human level AI, will these machines think and maybe more importantly, will they feel? And, and on top of that, how would you test for it? So Professor John Searle of Berkeley, he's a, a philosopher, thinks that the Turing test might well end up falling short. And he put forward his Chinese room counter-argument to the Turing test back in 1980. I don't understand Chinese, but let's suppose that you design a computer program that would enable me to answer questions in Chinese, and I go through the steps in the program and I answer the questions. So in come Chinese symbols. I don't know what they mean. I, they're just sim- meaningless symbols to me. And I follow the steps in the computer program, and I, the computer program tells me when you get this symbol, put it next to that symbol, and then you give back this symbol. And finally, the programs get so good at writing the programs, and I get so good at shuffling the symbols, that my answers are indistinguishable from a native Chinese speaker. I passed the Turing test. But all the same, I don't understand a word of Chinese. I'm just a computer. In this case, what I'm doing is carry out the steps in the program. And the bottom line of this refutation is if I don't understand Chinese on the basis of following a computer program and passing the Turing test, then neither does any other digital computer solely on that basis because no computer's got anything that I don't have. It's very simple. Uh, yeah, so it, it is It is simple. Do, do yeah. people generally kind of buy into what you're saying with the Chinese. It's it's called the Chinese room argument, right? The people who are opposed to it are people who have an axe to grind uh, for artificial intelligence. And the standard answer that they like to give is they say, well, okay, you don't understand Chinese, but the whole room understands Chinese because you're part of a system and it's the system that understands Chinese because you got there with boxes of symbols and a rule book and maybe you got pen and paper and it's the whole system. Now, that's a hopeless answer and I can respond to that answer. (laughs) Say what you really think, John. Yeah, what I actually think about it is that uh, it's a desperate attempt to keep the project of what I call strong artificial intelligence alive And the answer is, I have no way to get from the symbols to their meaning. I have no way to get from the syntax to the semantics. I can't figure out what any of these Chinese symbols mean. But if I can't, neither can the whole room. The whole room can't get from the symbols to the meanings, from the syntax to the semantics, any more than I can. And to prove that, I vary the example slightly. Instead of me in a room, I imagine I work outdoors, I memorize the program, I memorize all the symbols, do all the calculations in my head. All the same, there's no understanding in me because I'm just a computer. And there is one theoretical point I have to make, and that is the computer's operations are purely syntactical. That is to say, they operate over symbols. And and so the the contention then with the the Chinese room is that the, the computer, while it may be able to process symbols, it has no understanding of what it's doing. That's exactly right. Or the meaning of those symbols. 
And, and that's not a weakness of the computer. That's why they're so powerful. They don't have to worry about what any of this stuff means. The computer doesn't think, oh, my gosh, it's going to be long division. That's much harder than addition. It doesn't think anything. It just shuffles the symbols. I, I never had any doubts about it because, uh, well, there are two uh, four-word slogans that underlie the whole argument. One is syntax is not semantics and simulation is not duplication. If you can simulate intelligence, you haven't duplicated intelligence. Are you attracted to me? What? Are you attracted to me? You give me indications that you are. I do? Yes. How? Micro-expressions. Micro-expressions? The way your eyes fix on my eyes and lips. The way you hold my gaze. Well, you were just sitting there, Michael, kind of with a quite sceptical look on your Shaking face. Shaking my head, which, yeah. Which I like. <laughs> uh, you know... Uh, I would, by the way, I wouldn't get into an argument with Professor Johnson. No, I, I, he's not in the room, so I'm, I'm pleased to say what, what I like. I can't help thinking he's underplaying the power of computers in this. So he has this computer set up, and, and he made this argument, as you said, in like 1980, when computers weren't that great and they were, they seemed very straightforward, you know, very sort of logical, you know, if this, then that kind of thing. And actually, what he's talking about in that Chinese room, if he was there doing those symbols with his human brain, he would have a certain curiosity about what's going on. He would have an intuition uh, that was at work and looking at those symbols. And he would actually, even whether if he wasn't making a conscious effort, I think his brain would work out how to speak Chinese, how to do this kind of processing. And I think, do you think that the process of him actually getting very good at sorting the symbols out... And it would teach him language. That is him yeah. learning. Yeah, that and is him learning. By the end. Yeah. So I don't think that, that Chinese... Give him thing, a call. <laughs> I don't think it stands up. And, and I have to say that the kind of computer programs that we're operating now are not the same as in 1980. And so they do have this power to kind of be intuitive and to, and to learn and to be curious effectively. But to be clear, you say that computers now aren't just um, if this, then that. Yeah. But they are. They're just incredibly complex networks of those little well, no, junctions, I, I, aren't they? I, I disagree with you now, Rick, because actually... Unbelievable! They're, <laughs> they're actually to do with probabilistic kind of interpretations of, of data. So if I get this input, then I'm 50% thinking that that is the next thing to do is this. And I'll try that. And if that doesn't work, then I'll go back and try something else. And so they're, they're not... But still a, it's, it's, a fairly but it's like a much basic more feedback. It, it, there's it? feedback, there's, but, they're, but then they old. change. So then they change themselves based mm. on the feedback. So, so it, you know, if that doesn't work, I'll go back and I should try something different. So do you think then that a computer can learn Chinese and understand Chinese? Understand is a difficult thing to talk about. You know, it, it can certainly learn Chinese. It can learn how to do all the syntax and put it all together. And it might well, you know, as we progress, be able to understand what it is sort of doing or, or what the concepts are it's talking about. So, so, you know, we have image recognition now. So we have AI programs that can tell you what is in a photograph and write a caption to go on that photograph. So we're sort of, you know, are we talking about understanding that? I, I don't know. But it doesn't seem that different from what, say, you know, a five or 10-year-old child would be able to do we would say that they're conscious and they're intelligent so you know we i think we must be careful not to kind of say you know this is the concrete definition of intelligent this is a concrete definition of understanding there's a lot of leeway here and i think john searle isn't really giving it the no the he, he to be fair is giving no leeway at all. <laughs> but consciousness is a difficult thing to to define 
But in the in the course of my conversation with uh, John, I obviously asked him, and he said that he feels that it is just a biological phenomena, and that it's so uh, the, the the example he gave is that digestion is to the stomach what consciousness is to the brain. We fully understand now the sort of the, the chemistry and the biology of digestion. We don't yet fully understand the the chemistry and biology of consciousness because we don't fully understand how the how the brain sort of neural networks work. But one day we will, and then we'll be able to replicate it, and then we'll be able to create machines, quite unlike the computers that we're trying at the moment, that are able to think and feel and so on. What do you think about that? For me, the thing to do is just to build it and see what happens. And I, I kind of disagree with this whole sort of simulation is not duplication thing either, because I think if you can build it and you get something that has you know the appearance of consciousness, then I think you're, you're we'll old school. It. You're you're, we'll you're a Turing test guy. Aren't yeah, you? yeah, I kind of am. And and I think that you know whether you know we duplicate it in silicon, you know ours is biological. If we duplicate it in silicon, I still or simulate it in silicon, I still think that's duplication to a certain extent because why shouldn't we get the same process? It's just information processing. So we're just using different substrates for doing that information processing. But the consciousness arises from the information processing. I think you can simulate that and it will be the same as duplication. But the, the contentious thing there is you're saying that consciousness is, is, comes out of information processing. But information processing, John would say, is not the same as consciousness. Information processing that doesn't imply awareness of what you're doing. Well, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to accept his right to disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> but how incredibly accommodating <laughs> the the fact is that if we create something that is conscious nobody will ever know if it is actually conscious or not because it might tell us it's conscious but then you know you might tell me you're conscious but i can't verify that in any way whatsoever this is the whole zombie problem is that i know that i'm conscious i think therefore i am as descartes said mm. i know that i am conscious I don't know that you are conscious. I don't know that anybody else is conscious. You could all be zombies pretending to be, you know, to be conscious, pretending to react, you know, laugh at my jokes, that kind of thing. No one is pretending to do that. <laughs> um, so the, the, the study of consciousness from a biological point of view is quite young, isn't it? Yes, very much so. So therefore, it's reasonable to suppose that we may know more and more from a biological point of view what gives rise to consciousness and then be able to test for it more effectively. So you can be certain that, you know, the people... But the only way to test for it is, does it convince me? You know, no, no that's, that's, that's the only way at the moment. But if you're looking at it just from a biological sort of process point of view, if we got to a point where we could, we could pinpoint it and say, okay, it's this. It's, it's this movement of molecules. So all we could do is measure something within the brain yeah. and assume that that is what brings consciousness. But we, don't, we won't ever know that that's what brings consciousness. There'll always be an assumption in there. Mm. In my opinion. And actually, even though we've obviously just spent a good sort of 10 minutes arguing about it, the, um, the, the question of whether these machines are conscious is probably not the most pressing aspect. The most pressing aspect is leading into our third question. How are they going to affect humans here and now and in the near future? Badly. Maybe. Great. Great. Quite a short last question. <laughs> <laughs> because of the great potential of AI, it is important to research how to reap its benefits while avoiding potential pitfalls. 
10,000 of the world's leading AI researchers recently, as you probably know, put together an open letter where they said this must be stopped. We can't allow uh, this movement to the technology of autonomous killing machines. And they, they for example, cite uh, what's likely to happen in the future. For example, swarms of insect-sized uh, bombs, drones that can buzz up beside someone and blow up beside their head. Mm -hmm. I mean, these, this is the future in a way. Now, maybe we feel that way because every movie that shows artificial intelligence has that happen, all right? So, uh, but I'm fearless about this. As our computing power gets better, as our machines get better, yeah, we will program machines to do stuff we need them to do. By the way, we've been doing that forever. I mean, ever since we've had machines and ever since we've had computers. But we've never, we've never had offensive autonomous killing robots before. Yes, Killer we do. Robots. We programmed it. Yes. Not they're, autonomous ones. Well, they're, well, they make autonomous they're, they're called targets. guided missiles. Yeah. I, I, we have guided missiles that can find their target and destroy their target. We don't call them artificial intelligence, but that exactly, that's exactly what they are. We use our brain to put our motives into the chip that is in a missile to kill people and break stuff. The progress in AI research makes it timely to focus research not only on making AI more capable, but also on maximizing the societal benefit of AI. We recommend expanded research aimed at ensuring... We recommend expanded research aiming at ensuring that increasingly capable AI systems are robust and beneficial. Our AI systems must do what we want them to do. The Hubble telescope is a robot. The, the, the machines that build your automobiles are robots. All right? This idea that we're going to create a humanoid that is going to... No! In summary... We believe that research on how to make AI systems robust and beneficial is both important and timely, and that there are concrete research directions that can be pursued today. So when, when we wrote this, of course, the bottom line is this thing at the end, that we really need to redefine the goal of the field away from making pure, undirected intelligence to making beneficial intelligence. So our panel today represents a miniature version of our uniquely approach, which has taken aim at contributing to ensuring respon responsible technological development. What we as a UN entity strive to create is a multi-stakeholder uh, platform for cooperation. It's our pleasure and we're honored to have you, Max, here. Max Tegmark, who is a, uh, who's a physics professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. There are three big debates about AI in society that it's important not to conflate. The very short term is one is simply, should we start an arms race in AI drones and other autonomous lethal weapons? That's being discussed at the United Nations now. And the second big question is, what is this going to do to the economy? And my personal guess is that we're going to have a future where... Almost all work is done by machines and most humans don't have jobs. The third question is, what happens when machines become smarter than us and better at everything? And, and the answer to that question very plainly boils down to what goals these machines have, which depends on <laughs> how, we, how we create them. Whoever has an artificial intelligence under their control is going to try to put their own moral values into it. So if ISIS has 
an AI weapon. They're going to put in their values into it. So what this means is that when we design things, we should simply think of artificial intelligence as this great amplifier that can amplify people's ability to do things. You know, if uh, you have a machine that's much more powerful than you, then it will accomplish its goals. Just like if you play against a chess program that's much more powerful than you, it's going to be checkmate for you. So the key thing is simply to make sure that these machines have goals that you think you're okay with. A computer beat the first Western Grandmaster in Go this year. And I was very amused to hear DeepMind's account of how they did it. They built this very, very big brain computer, and then they got it to play with itself. Or as they said, play with itself. And actually the idea of these people with very big brains playing with themselves is actually kind of the story of AI. And so the question of social intelligence, the question of motivation, the question of kindness, the question of cooperation, all of these things, it seems to me, are absent from most of the AI projects that are there, but they're actually also absent from most of the tech entrepreneurs that are funding these projects and from many of the researchers. So I think there is a big problem with AI and tech, uh, which is about it being adult men and not women and not children that are directing them. Did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? I programmed her to be heterosexual, just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. I want to be with you. Question five. So I think what Dan Glazer was saying there is that the the problem is that the people who are creating AIs are also like not great people. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant point. I mean, yeah. because how do you become a, you know, a tech billionaire? It's not really usually by being a well-rounded human being with lots of, you know, great friends and, and the social skills and everything no, else, is it? Emotional intelligence isn't necessarily <laughs> your thing, is it? <laughs> so these are the people in charge of the program. <laughs> like By default, we are going to get something that we may not be comfortable with. Mm. So one of the things that was getting said there is that actually we create these semi-autonomous weapons already. Should we continue and create fully autonomous weapons? No. Feels like a no, doesn't it? <laughs> it does feel <laughs> I mean, do you we talk re- about it for a long time if you want. Do you really need to ask that question? <laughs> I'd rather we didn't. No, no. Fully autonomous weapons where uh, a program is, is choosing the target, identifying the target, wiping out the target, does not sound like a good idea. No, not And And it's interesting. So all. you talk about the escalation of technology. And we got ourselves to the point where we had atomic bombs and the world is full of nuclear warheads and we've not used them, you know, because humans are in control and humans play this, you know, careful game. We understand the rules. You give it over to a computer, you lose control of it. And actually it's much, much better for all of us if if we retain control. So so the answer to fully autonomous weapons is a big fat no from me. Mm. Something else that I thought was interesting is when I think it was Max was talking about how we shouldn't necessarily be worried about um, or, or autonomous kind of thinking AI because we can make sure that we put structures in that give it goals that we think are, are good goals. But that assumes that these are non-shifting goals, doesn't it? So there are certainly researchers who have called for machines that have this kind of capability to be provably incapable of, of doing, you know, of reprogramming themselves. Hmm. And and is that realistic? 
I don't see why you couldn't program that in, but it, it must limit what you can do with a machine. So yeah. I think we're, we're talking about imposing constraints on ourselves effectively of what we create. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, given that we all have different values. We have to find a sort of lowest common denominator that we're all happy with. Hmm. But it's clearly not all negative. No, very clear. No, no. And there are some amazing, you know, positive applications of AI. You can now have a Skype conversation that gets translated between different languages, you know, by AI. It's enabling the world to talk to each other. So it's breaking down the language barrier, which, you know, for the first time in the history of humanity, actually, you know, we're actually eradicating a fundamental barrier between different sort of parts of the of, of, of the human species. I think that's really a remarkable thing. You know, we talked about medical imaging, you know, the fact that we're in a much better position to give early diagnoses of cancer thanks to AI. Um, so I think there's, there's plenty of reasons to be positive about it. I suppose the conclusion in a sense is that actually AI is not, is not intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. As, as, as Max said, it's just a sort of amplification yeah. of our capabilities. And can we retain control over what's going on, even though it sort of does have a degree of autonomy? I suppose that's the... That's the most worrying thing, isn't it? If is if we can't. Yeah, and and this is the whole reason about why there's a problem with giving them unlimited capabilities. Because you know we might say, oh, wouldn't it be brilliant if they were cleverer than us? You know, so then we could surpass our human abilities. But actually, you know, that's that's the road down which Hawking doesn't want us to go because we get this machine that thinks, do you know what? I think the the humans can't really look after themselves. I'm going to take over some of the responsibilities they've given themselves, and that is the the danger. We create a super intelligence, effectively, that then shows us that we're not actually good enough to be in the position we're in and demotes us to being sort of second order beings on the planet. I suppose the thing you have to do is make sure that they can't get up and down stairs. <laughs> That's always the thing that gives them problems, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Keep living yeah. on multi-story yeah, yeah, houses yeah. And, and, and live on the top screwed. floor. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> you might well be clever. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's review uh, our three questions. So our first question was, how far off is human level artificial intelligence? We don't know. We don't really. I think, actually, <laughs> that's probably the answer to all of these. <laughs> we don't know, but we know that a lot of money uh, is being spent by powerful corporations with access to a huge amount of data. Yeah, I think it's accelerating. Progress mm. is definitely accelerating. You know, the fact that they got this you know, Go playing computer to the standard it is a decade earlier than expected, I think it's only going to get faster. Sobering. Uh, okay, second question. Will they think and will they feel? This is where, where you get angry, isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> your, your point is, it's sort of irrelevant and it's impossible to, it's impossible to know to tell. anyway. You know, they might tell us their thinking and feeling. You know, going back to the film, you know, that's kind of one of the, the tests is, you know, we have to understand, is Ava thinking and feeling? What is she thinking and feeling? And, and what did you, what was your take on it? So um, I, I actually disagreed with Murray Shanahan on this. I put her down as conscious. Oh, did you? Thinking and feeling. Yeah. And ah. I don't think Murray didn't no, want to I go didn't. that far. You no, really didn't. didn't. No. Did you fancy her as well? Of course. <laughs> you legend. <laughs> um, so two dissatisfactory answers so far. <laughs> dissatisfactory. That's not a word. Yeah. Isn't it? No. Unsatisfactory. I think both might be. No, I don't think so. We've disagreed about a lot of stuff. Oh, sorry, we've unagreed about a lot of stuff. Um, okay, third question. Should we be worried about AI? 
Yes. I think it's right to be worried. Uh, maybe worried is the wrong word, but concerned and... Should we think about it? <laughs> we should, definitely should think about mm. it. I think, you know, we have to put things in place to make sure it goes in the right direction. Mary's a scientist, and her specialist subject is color. She knows everything there is to know about it. The wavelengths, the neurological effects, every possible property that color can have. But she lives in a black and white room. And then one day someone opens the door. And Mary walks out. And she sees a blue sky. And at that moment she learns something that all her studies couldn't tell her. She learns what it feels like to see color. The thought experiment was to show the students the difference between a computer and a human mind. The computer is Mary in the black and white room. The human is when she walks out. Hello. Hi. No. Did you know that I was brought here to test you? No. Does Ava actually like you? Sorry, I, I, I don't know. Do you think the fact that it's coming up on all of the dictionaries um, <laughs> is, is a sign that it is a word or not? Merriam-Webster, the free dictionary, dictionaryreference.com, thesaurus.com. <laughs> what is not a word is dissatisfactorily. Um, but dissatisfactorily. Where are you going to take that, are you? Bloody dictionaries. Are you, you going to, so just quickly, just so we can get this, just tell me that you were. You were wrong. According to some sources. All sources. I may have been Except you. hasty in my uh, refusal to accept that word. It's quite a weak apology. Yeah, yeah, it's designed weak to be. Weak artificial intelligence is it, is, Sorry, is it, is it dissatisfactory? Yes. <laughs> of course. Now the question is, how does she feel about you? I don't like it when people just sit down in their armchair and say, oh, I wonder if the future is going to be good or bad. As if we're just some sort of lame bystanders who have no impact. We are the people who are creating this future. So let's get together, let's plan carefully, and let's make it good. And so, so the issue here is you don't stop the technology, you monitor our conduct as human beings in the face you know, the important question is, what the hell do we do about it when there's nothing left that humans can do to add economic value? And what do we do when we're halfway there? Science Sesh is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Professor Murray Shanahan, Jeremy Howard, Dr. Daniel Glazer, Professor John Searle, and Professor Max Tegmark. The executive producers were Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day. 
just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 